everybody, and welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. So, don't be jolly or anything, but I've got a Clearly Canadian, and it is blackberry flavored, and it is so yummy. And what I love about where I live in Houston is that you can get pretty much anything you want, like whenever you want. So I'm a big fan. Um, so I found that today and I was just like, oh my gosh, obsessed. And that's like, I found them before at Randall's, but it's always like the, the cherry flavor and I'm, cherry's okay. It used to be my favorite when I was a kid, but blackberry and peach is where it's at. But anyway, I have been on a little bit of a hiatus and honestly, it's just because life, life gets, you know, hectic and crazy. And unfortunately I cannot podcast full time. I would love to, but it's not possible. So I work full time. I'm a mom and a wife, so I've got a lot going on. Um, but my goal is to bring more episodes as it always is. So I'm continually working on that. I'm researching another episode that's going to be more of a series, just like this one, but it's going to be more than just one story. So uh, we'll work on that. And it goes from the beginning of time. So (laughs) it is a bit of an undertaking. This one just blew up with information. And there have been books and stuff written on it. Um, There's websites and um, forums dedicated to it. I mean, just information ad nauseum. And so it's hard not to go down the rabbit hole, which I did anyway, because I do that stuff. So... Ah, all right, fuck it. We're going to do Lizzie Borden. And yeah, everyone's done it. And I have tried to avoid doing big stories like Lizzie Borden's. And you know why? Because they're done to death by every true crime podcast out there. Um, But I started to ask myself, why? Why does this woman stay on our minds? Why is this brutal murder still stuck in our cultural memories of the 19th century? And, you know, it wasn't even the only brutal murder. There were so many. So I think what it is, is the utter brutality of it. And that still doesn't even put it in like the top 10 of the most brutal murders of the 19th century. But really, it's that pools of blood and the viscera and the idea of a miscarriage of justice. Or it could be that the killer either got away or was acquitted and will likely never know which outcome is the right one. And honestly, it's the unsolved murders for me. Unsolved murders always grab my attention and leave me and probably many, many more wanting to go and investigate stuff for myself. Of course, this happened over 100 years ago, so that ship has sailed. But I can do a deep dive over two to three parts, which is exactly what I'm going to do. But a couple things before I get into my research. One, I have had some technical difficulties or I'm experiencing some technical difficulties and that my microphone either broke or the cord that connects it to my computer broke. I'm not entirely sure. I just found out. So please bear with me. If you hear some background noises, it could be my couch. I have a leather couch, so it makes some questionable noises. Sometimes when I move even a little bit, or it could be my dog or the air conditioner or any number of things that go on. So I apologize right off the bat for that. So please, please bear with me through that. Second, I wanted to give you my thoughts on it before 
really researching it just from growing up and hearing the story and seeing all the TV shows about it. You know, nearly all of us have heard this story. And if you haven't, you're probably extremely young because it's a juggernaut. We've all heard the jeer that school children used to sing to her. Um, It goes a little something like this. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her father 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Now, that's not accurate at all. Um, But we won't get into that on this episode. I will say that looking at the evidence that I can remember, I didn't feel like Lizzie had done it. I mean, she was an animal lover, a Sunday school teacher, and that makes me feel like she's just not capable. And then again, I remember something or hearing something about her burning a dress and the dress being found fairly recently with enough evidence still on the unburnt parts to warrant a serious indication that Lizzie did indeed kill her father and stepmother, Abby. I just have too many doubts to really put in too much early judgments, but my immediate thoughts at this juncture are that she didn't do it, but she definitely knew who did. There's there's just too much. The timeline is just weird. <laughs> Um, But we'll see if the research changes things. So here goes, Lizzie Borden. In the mid-1800s, Fall River, Massachusetts was in an industrial boom. The manufacturing of textiles and the shipping industry via the Quickashan River were helping Fall River to become very wealthy indeed. The Borden family had helped found Fall River, already wealthy in the late 1700s before and after the American Revolution. The wealthy Bordens, who could afford to live on the hill, a neighborhood overlooking the city, were not much in contact with the middle-class Bordens who lived in Fall River proper. There had been a rift somewhere, I would say two generations into living in Fall River, that separated them into these two branches. And I couldn't find much as to what this rift was, but it was very clear that the Bordens, whether they were on the hill or whether they were in the city were well respected in the community. The family had come from Normandy, France to England in 1066 with William the Conqueror's armies. William had led his armies to England in what would be the last successful invasion of the country. After the pivotal Battle of Hastings in 1066, the former English King Harold was killed and William took the crown. William had granted certain soldiers in his army parcels of land as a reward for their skills on the battlefield and their loyalty to him. The Borden ancestor was granted land in County Kent, where his family would flourish until moving to Wales. And in 1635, they sailed over to Portsmouth, Rhode Island to establish a colony. After many years, they came to Fall River, where Richard Borden was allotted five acres of land. He continued to buy land, especially by the Quickashan River, to harness the power the water could provide, along with the shipping lanes. Over the years, the family would control more of the city, becoming even richer in the process. In 
they would soon purchase mills for textile manufacturing, along with railroads, steamboats, and mining companies. But they came under the scrutiny of the public eye when an unthinkable tragedy struck. Two generations before Andrew's murder, the Borden family knew another killer. Lizzie's great-uncle, that is, her grandfather's brother, Loudwick Borden, had taken four wives in the course of his life. While not the most common thing in the world, it wasn't unheard of to have this many wives, especially as women died more often during childbirth. Women's health care wasn't as developed back then as most of us know, but it was especially true for women's mental health care. So Loudwick's first wife, Maria Briggs, passed away five years into their marriage. And while the cause of death is not known, it's probable that she gave birth twice, with both infants not surviving past the first year. And it's probable because there are two infant graves near hers and Loudwick's, so it's safe to assume this. And when I say that it's probable, it just means that we really don't know. The records do not exist. Um, with her for, or for with her death, she didn't die in childbirth because the last infant that died died two years before she did, but it could have been any one thing. Um, Loudwick's second wife, Eliza Darling, married him in 1843. This is five years after Maria's death and gave him three children, Holden, Eliza Ann, and Maria. Eliza became pregnant almost directly after her marriage to Loudwick and gave birth to Maria in 1844. Two years later, Eliza Ann would join the family. And a year and a half later, in 1848, the first boy, Holden, would be born. Eliza Darling Borden had given birth three times in four years, and her mental health suffered each time. As that was not a subject that was spoken of out loud much, it went unnoticed by Loudwick and the rest of the Borden family. Loudwick and Eliza, though middle class, were not rich, so help was probably in the form of a maid that also had the responsibility of household chores and wouldn't have been able to help with the children that much. Loudwick was listed on the census as a lumberman and thus would be away from home, earning a living nearly every day. And when I say that it was a subject that wasn't spoken of much, we're going to go off script here for a second, there is definitely a reason for that. And a lot of it was fear. So if Eliza had said, hey, I'm not feeling right, something is not going on, um, she would have to first come to that realization on her own that she was somehow betraying herself, like that she would have to be self-aware enough for that to, to occur. And then she would risk being committed and that's involuntarily committed for however long we really don't know and asylums even then did not have a great reputation for treating patients well i mean if you knew anybody who'd been to the asylum and had made it out they were different they were quiet um any number of things could have happened to them there so the fear was high and i have to say the fear is still high because people still have problems talking about postpartum depression. I had to deal with it. 
And I was afraid that if I talked about it too much, they would think, oh, well, she's going to do something unspeakable um, or she's going to kill herself. I was afraid of that. I was afraid of the same thing, being committed or being looked at really heavily. So, I mean, thankfully, I still overcame it and went to a doctor and got the help that I needed. But man, it was a choice. If it's a choice now, if it's something I have to think about now, in 2022, or back then it was 2018, Eliza must have gone through that too. Just some food for thought. So the problems went unnoticed until 1848. And that's when Eliza, possibly, again, we don't know, possibly suffering from a severe case of postpartum depression, would take her newborn son, Holden, her two-year-old Eliza, and her four-year-old Maria down to the cistern in the cellar. And for any of you who have a question as to what a cistern is, I've heard some accounts describe a well um, that this happened in, but it was a cistern, and rainwater would fall around the house, and it would be collected through a series of, I think, tubes. Um, Maybe not tubes, but something. Um, And it would be collected into this rectangular receptacle of varying size, usually like four foot by six foot or so. I mean, again, they varied. The water could be used for washing clothes, dishes, yourself. (laughs) And generally it would be about one to two feet deep. And again, sizes vary. They could definitely have been deeper and bigger. So it wasn't an odd thing necessarily for the kids to go with their mother down to the cellar cistern. But when Eliza took Holden and threw him into the water... Followed by Eliza Ann, Maria knew she had to get away. She knew that the cistern was dangerous, and she'd been warned against getting too near it many times. Before her mother finished drowning Eliza Ann, Maria took off up the stairs and ran as far away as she could. And instead of following after her, Eliza walked back up the stairs into the house and grabbed Loudwick's straight razor from the restroom. There, she took the blade and slashed her throat. She was 37 years old. Maria would grow up to see her dad get married twice more. And I couldn't find a record of any more of her siblings from later marriages. But we do know that she lived at her father's house, even after her marriage at the age of 22, to Samuel B. Hinckley. Now, Hinkley had first met Maria a year after her mother and siblings died when she was five years old and he was 18. He was a boarder in her father's house, and it appears that he never forgot her, even though it's more than just a little bit creepy that that's when he first met her, right? Like, there aren't any accounts that really draw much attention to this, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But it's real weird. So... In researching Samuel Hinckley, I found that he had two children that were from a later marriage, and he's listed as the ex-husband of Maria Chase. I couldn't find any divorce records at all for this, but I do see that he had one child outside of both marriages, and two in his marriage after Maria to Julia Hinckley. He ended up dying in 1918 in Riverside, California. Just some interesting tidbits about him. 
divorce was very uncommon. So I, if anyone has any information on this, I would love to know. But Maria would find love again in her marriage to John B. Chase. And as Maria Chase, she would have two children and be alive and well to see her cousin Andrew and his wife have their children, Emma and Lizzie. Before all this, though, before she got married, her father, Loudwick, had taken a house, now known as the Kelly House, after marrying his first wife, Maria Briggs, in 1838. He was not a man known for moving, so he stayed in that home, though it contained some of the most incredibly painful memories a person could have, until his death in 1874. By 1874, though, Maria had moved on from the home where so many traumas had occurred. With her husband, John B. Chase, she had her two children, Loudwick and Emma. History records her losing her first child, Loudwick, at three months old, which must have been incredibly tragic for anyone, but especially for her. Three years later, however, Emma would be born and go on to marry Henry Goulding and have just one son, Borden Chase Goulding. I'm sure there are relatives of Maria and John still living around Fall River, but the genealogy records appear to stop here. The Kelly House, as it would come to be known during Lizzie's trial, was right next door to where Andrew Borden would settle with Emma Lizzie and his new wife Abby. The Kelly House gets its name from the next door residents, Caroline Cantwell Kelly and Dr. Michael F. Kelly. They too will play a part in the trial to come. So while Maria did not live next door to Lizzie during these murders, she definitely was alive to hear about them. She was in her 40s. And I just found her story remarkable. She survives this double murder. She moves on with her life. And then she hears about her first cousin, Andrew, brutally murdered by her niece. No, not niece. (laughs) She's not her aunt. By her, I don't know, second cousin, whatever. By Lizzie. By his kid. And again, she was acquitted, I have to say that. But, I mean, two homes, five deaths, one suicide in that death list... It's just crazy. And let me be clear, I am not saying that Eliza Darling had any any worthwhile cause to kill her children. That was that was unspeakable. It was unthinkable what she did to those two children. And in the wake of the Uvalde mass shootings, death the deaths of children, the early deaths of children, especially in a brutal way, is just very hard to take. In fact, I had written this about a week ago, and it was hard to commit it to to a track because the Uvalde mass shooting really affected me in a way that was just more than any other has. And to also be researching the deaths of these children was difficult. So I'm putting it out there now because I think a lot of people don't know about this story. I think it's interesting. But it does also kind of paint a picture as to where the family was at this time. Also, I can't get over it that these people lived right next door to each other. These these atrocities occurred right next door to each other in two houses on the same block. I mean, crazy. Not even the same block. Right 
next door to each other. I just can't get over it. So who knows? That is some gruesome stuff. But anyway, that's going to be part one. And it's a short one. We're going to have a little bit of a longer episode of the next one. We're going to get into Andrew Borden and his wives and their history in Fall River. And then we're going to talk about Lizzie as well. I'm not sure if I'm going to make Lizzie and Emma, the two sisters, their own episode. And then the final episode will be the trial. I'm not sure how we're going to break that up next. I think the next one will just be all of that. Andrew, the wives, their children, and all of that together uh, with some implications on how the children acted and that affluenza thing that rich people talk about. So um, we will get to that on the next episode and even more. And again, if y'all have any requests, please send them in. If I have not gotten to your request, because I've gotten a few, it's generally because I just don't have enough information on it and it's hard to find the information. Um, When I do my research, I consult uh, genealogy websites. I consult primary sources from newspapers and... um, other sources that were written about or written at the time. So I really try to dig deep. And if there's just not a lot, or if, and this happens sometimes, if the story was rooted mostly in um, paranormal tourism, then it's going to be hard to validate. So that paranormal tourism, I've talked about it before, uh, especially in the Carpathian region, which is really it's really big in Romania and Eastern Europe in general. And um, that paranormal tourism is big here too, let me tell you. I, I hate having to see something and say, or see all these people talk about how haunted something is when there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of death of any kind. There's no evidence of anything happening. So, for example, Hotel Galvez. Now, while Hotel Galvez does have some tragedy, there's no question about that, they do talk about a woman who had committed suicide. They even have her name because her lover had, or her fiancé, excuse me, her fiancé had said, wait for me, I'll come back, I'll marry you. And a false word during World War II had come back and said that he had died. So she threw herself off of one of the towers. And or she hung herself. I'm not sure which one. But then the fiancé came back and found out that she had died. And I think he died. Somebody died. Maybe they both died. That's usually how these stories go. But either way, there is no evidence. Not even one. And they have this girl's like name and stuff. I can't think of it now, but they have the name. They talk about her. But I cannot find one shred of evidence that any of this occurred. And Galveston has actually a really good history of reporting on things from around the country correctly. I mean, they're a port study. So it stands to reason that they would have some record of this happening at the Hotel Galvez because people stayed there a lot. I'm on a whole other tangent. I'm off script. This is what happens when I'm not on script. I go on a whole thing, a whole rant about the Hotel Galvez. I think that it's possible that it's haunted. A lot of stuff happened there. It was around for the flood of 1906 or the hurricane of 1906 that killed so many residents of Galveston. 
But I don't think that there's like a lady in white who wanders the halls. I don't know. I don't see it. Maybe I have to stay there to really see it in person. I might just go there and like roam the halls myself. We'll see. But until I do, I still think that's paranormal tourism and I'm not down for it. All right, you guys, send me your stories. Send me your thoughts, your prayers, um, <laughs> your commitment to vote Greg Abbott out of office, whatever you want to do. Send me all that. Um, anyway, thank you for listening. And remember to follow me on my Instagram. I am at historical paranormal. 